Welcome to Access Utah. The Smithsonian Institution houses a vast collection of artifacts from across the nation and around the world. What can all of these items tell us about American culture and history? Well, today on Access Utah, Richard Curran, Undersecretary for History, Art, and Culture at the Smithsonian, joins Sherry Quinn for a discussion about the stories they reveal. Then at 9.30, Science Questions explores marijuana policy through the lens of a theologian. Access Utah and Science Questions, up next. Welcome to Access Utah. This is Sherry Quinn. What artifacts define America, and what stories do they reveal? Today on the program, we try to answer those questions with... Richard Curran. I'm the Undersecretary for History, Art, and Culture at the Smithsonian Institution in Washington, and right now I'm in Falls Church, Virginia. As the Smithsonian's Undersecretary for History, Art, and Culture, Dr. Richard Curran oversees most of the Smithsonian's national museums, libraries, and archives, as well as several of its research and outreach programs. He represents the institution on the President's Committee on the Arts and the Humanities and has been awarded the Smithsonian Secretary's Gold Medal for Exceptional Service. He has taught at the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies and frequently lectures at the George Washington University, as well as at universities and museums across the country and around the world. He holds a Ph.D. in anthropology from the University of Chicago and is professor for the great course's new release, Experiencing America, a Smithsonian Tour Through American History. He grew up in New York City. You know, poor working class uh, uh, kid, uh, immigrant parents, but one of the things we did in New York was go to museums. And museums were free, and I could go to museums just like the rich kids. And I loved the Natural History Museum, got interested in different cultures of the world. I was an undergraduate uh, taking an anthropology course, and a professor said, you know, uh, and I said I wanted to go to India, and um, which was a little puzzling to my folks. <laughs> but it just represented, you know, a 19-year-old wanting to explore the world. And my professor said, yeah, you know, do you need money to go? And I said, sure, I do. I take independent study, go, a go to a village, study a village, understand another culture. And he said, well, you probably need money. Why don't you call this lady at the museum in New York? I said, the museum in New York? Wow, what a dream. I went there as a kid. He said, yeah, go call Margaret Mead. I worked for her. So that's what I did. Wow. Well, it turned out uh, uh, I, I was going to India, and she passed me off to a few of the other curators in the museum. I ended up going to India, living in a village for six months, collecting uh, material culture, uh, well, you know, plows and winnowers and baskets and cotton spinning wheels and all sorts of stuff. And, you know, really got exposure to another culture and understanding how it worked. What part uh, of India? Back. Sorry, what part uh, of India in were you Punjab. in? Punjab. It was in Punjab. Okay. okay. And then, um, then came back and kind of got the bug and went to graduate school, University of Chicago, got a PhD, did more research in India and Pakistan, came to work for the Smithsonian as an intern, like about 2,000 students do every year in different parts of the Smithsonian. I ended up working for the Smithsonian during the bicentennial of the United States in 1976 for something called the Folklife Festival on the Mall, where thousands of artists from around the country, U.S. and around the world, came to demonstrate their stuff, their traditions, their craft traditions, their music, uh, the ritual traditions, celebratory traditions, fashion, and so on. And so I kind of got hooked on doing scholarship 
for the public. And, you know, the idea is the Smithsonian is free, it's accessible, it's open to everybody, and you can really learn from it. And so I kind of love that idea, so I went into a career at the Smithsonian, uh, ran the uh, Folklife program for about two decades, uh, doing that big festival on the mall, but organizing special programs for everything from presidential inaugurations to the opening of the American Indian Museum and the World War II Memorial to working on the Olympics and so on, and uh, oversaw something called Folkways Records, which had all those recordings of Pete Seeger and Woody Guthrie and people of all across the planet. So I did that for about 20 years, and uh, they moved me up in Smithsonian administration, and now I oversee most of our national museums in the United States, a lot of our cultural and educational programs. And so it's been, uh, been a wonderful career, and, you know, the Smithsonian serves, again, the country and the world, and I kind of love doing scholarship in the public eye and for the public good. Wonderful. And could you describe what Undersecretary for History, Art, and Culture means? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a complicated, it, it sounds like an interesting title. Um, I do a lot of trying to help our museum directors realize their vision and do their work. So I have to deal a lot, obviously, with uh, budgets, uh, with fundraising, uh, dealing with the bureaucracy and making ha- things happen. I kind of regard myself as the downfield blocker for our various museum directors so they can they can quarterback and do their work. But, you know, also providing leadership in various areas where we have opportunities to work across the different museums of the Smithsonian. Because remember, you know, Smithsonian, you have everything from the Air and Space Museum and the Natural History Museum to our American History and Portrait Gallery and even our Postal Museum uh, and uh, design museum, and so it's a it's a tremendous range of uh, of museums. We serve about 30 million people visitors a year to our museums, and hundreds of millions of people online. And so, um, you know, you kind of try to hold things together, uh, make things work, and also look for those kind of projects that will go across the Smithsonian that'll help us both extend our reach and our service to the uh, to the American people and people around the country. So right now I run a few special projects. One is we tend to help people around the world when there's a uh, natural or man-made disaster uh, where culture is in, in trouble. After the earthquake in Haiti, things collapsed. The Haitians lost. Many, much of their national treasures were under the rubble. And I led a project across the institution, across the country, and even in with international partners, to send people voluntarily to Haiti uh, to help the Haitians recover and restore their artwork, their archives, their libraries, and so on, so they would continue to have access to their treasures. We do similar things in Mali. Right now we've had teams in southern Turkey helping Assyrians uh, flee their country and then go back and basically provide supplies and help them so they could pack up their culture so it's not destroyed in this terrible conflict. Well, incredible. And uh, other than, um, that sounds quite challenging, actually, that work. And also, what are the challenges of engaging the younger generations in our our history and culture and cultural artifacts? And what are the challenges of, of getting younger people involved and engaged? Yeah, well, I have two younger people of my own. I have two daughters. I guess they're called millennials, right, in terms of the generation they pick. their late 20s and early 30s. They both got a lot of education and love museums. And I have a, one daughter who works for the University of California, Santa Barbara. She teaches in anthropology there. She's a mummy lady. She does work in Peru on 
thousand-year-old mm. mummy. She got interested in that because I take mm. her. She'd go with her dad to the Smithsonian. Oh, great. Uh, but the other got interested. The other one got interested in culture and issues of of uh, uh, human dignity and rights and respect, and now wants to be a lawyer because she got a sense of you know the value and worth of human beings across the planet. Um, you know, we, we, we get a lot of young people to the Smithsonian. I think the challenge these days is people expect that they're going to get their world on their iPhone <laughs> or their world online, or maybe they're going to learn about culture in a 140-word uh, uh, tweet. And, you know, it takes a little more work than that. So I think, you know, my job is how to use, uh, in, in many cases, the challenge is how to use uh, social media, the n- new forms of technology, uh, to reach young people with the excitement uh, that maybe people used to get when they'd, you know, find a museum diorama <laughs> or go see an object in that way. And I, and I actually find we're very, very uh, successful uh, uh, in terms of doing that. We have no no loss of school children, young, you know, first graders and second graders who walk into a museum and see a dinosaur. They see a dinosaur bones and all of a sudden they're intrigued and you know, maybe one day they'll be a paleontologist or they'll see a giant squid in a natural history museum and maybe want to be an oceanographer or they'll they'll see one of our spaceships, uh, get interested and, and want to fly, maybe go to outer space or discover new planets. So I think, you know, the great thing that I find about museums is, you know, we use all the objects, we use the collections, we do it for our own research, so we generate new knowledge, we find new species, we figure out ways of helping save environments and the planet and so on. But, you know, museums are also a place of tremendous discovery and inspiration where kids are going to get it not so much out of a book, not so much out of a text message or something. They're going to see something and go, wow, how did that get to be that way? And maybe I want something to do with it. And so what are some of the artifacts and pieces of American history that maybe you see the most of and that you, you would say are pieces that would really define American culture or American history or trends well, in society? Well, you know, we run a, a gamut of them from, you know, really pre-colonial times, Native American times, for example. So um, I, I did a book called, uh, you know, the Smithsonian's History of American 101 Objects and now uh, turn that into a, a, a great courses course on experiencing America. And, you know, I start out with some native objects that really show how there was civilization on this continent before European uh, um, settlement. And so when you look at, you know, it's not only uh, 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 Clovis points, uh, which you, fa- you find in, you know, your listening area, which show Native American habitation, you know, back 14,000 years ago, uh, but also these wonderfully sculpted uh, bronze uh, uh, copper plates from Mississippian culture uh, that really showed that you had massive cities in the U.S. But, you know, in, in terms of the United States itself, we have wonderful, you know, the Declaration of Independence. We like to show off Jefferson's desk. We like to show the draft that Jefferson wrote and how Ben Franklin actually edited it. <laughs> so we think sometimes of these documents as, you know, kind of iconic and finished, but you know, it's so wonderful when you see people scratching out words and putting other words and, you know, realize that this was a, a part of a process. 
we have iconic objects that belong to Benjamin Franklin, uh, his walking cane, and the sword of Washington. And when they were donated by, you know, to Congress and the country in the 1840s, it was the, the staff of the scholar, Franklin, and the sword of the general Washington, upon which our country was founded. And you look at those, and you, you kind of feel a bit of George Washington and Benjamin Franklin. But, you know, we have in the Smithsonian... Uh, you know, things like the first telegraph that was invented that changed the country uh, in terms of communication. The telegraph was the, you know, was the iPhone or the Blackberry of the, of, of, of the day, of the 19th century. And Alexander Graham Bell's first telephone and Edison's first light bulb that lit up the planet. Hmm. And so these are, you know, kind of seminal in, inventions. But, you know, you you you, you you, you go forward, and at the Smithsonian, you can find everything from the Wright brothers who first flew to you know, Lindbergh, Spirit of St. Louis, to the Space Shuttle Discovery and the Apollo spacecraft that took us to the moon. Uh, in popular culture, you know, we do have in the Smithsonian, you know, George Lucas's R2-D2 and C-3PO, as well as Jim Henson's Kermit the Frog, recently joined at the Smithsonian by Miss Piggy. Oh. <laughs> uh, we have the first electronic computer, the ENIAC, and Steve Jobs's uh, you know, Apple Macintosh. So, you know, there's a whole panoply of, of, of culture. You can find just about anything in the Smithsonian and some of the seminal inventions, uh, the things that remind us of both national tragedy and national celebration. On the tragedy side, we have Lincoln's top hat, the stovepipe top hat that he wore when he was assassinated that night at Ford's Theater. And you look at that hat, and, you know, it's worn, it's frayed, uh, it has uh, stains on it. You, 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 you look at that and you, you see Abraham Lincoln. Um, we have items from Pearl Harbor and 9-11. So, you know, we have those tragedies. And, and, and then you have those items of, uh, of celebration, Jackie Kennedy's inaugural ground, gown that she wore after John F. Kennedy delivered that speech. Uh, you know, that, that passed the torch uh, to the new generation in the 60s and uh, inspired a generation. Uh, the Greensboro lunch counter where students sat down, Greensboro, North Carolina, they sat down to stand up for their civil rights as citizens of this country. So, you know, it, there's an amazing panoply of material in the Smithsonian. Each one of those objects tells a nuanced, important a story about our our experience as Americans, right? That must be fascinating to see these artifacts, and then and then to know the story behind them, or to learn about the story behind them. And how many have you seen in your uh, experience? Well, <laughs> that, that is a good question. You know, sure, the, the Smithsonian has in its collections 138 million objects. Million, 138 million. That's that's a pretty big Excel spreadsheet. <laughs> So that's a lot of stuff. Now, now some of them are tiny microscopic shrimp, but others are, you know, whales and dinosaurs and, you know, space shuttles and airplanes and the Concorde and, and the Enola Gay. So it's huge. I, I've seen, you know, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of objects and artworks uh, and also archives and recordings at the Smithsonian. Um, but it's just a fraction. For anybody that goes to Washington and visits the Smithsonian, if you went to all 19 of our museums, and the zoo, where we have living collections like Bao Bao, the, the panda, wow. <laughs> uh, and, and other inhabitants. The zoo is part of the Smithsonian. Uh, Smithsonian. 
um, you only see about, oh, maybe 2% of our whole collection at any one time. So uh, it, it takes a lot. It takes years to see everything. Yeah. What would you describe as the mission of the Smithsonian and, and the stories that it's trying to tell through all of these objects and even creatures? Yeah. Well, you know, the overall story, I mean, a lot of people don't realize, you know, the, the Smithsonian was, was uh, founded by a Britishman, James Smithson, back in the early uh, 1800s, who'd never visited the United States, but he left his money to the people of the United States. He had a great faith in this country. We were a frontier people then. <laughs> uh, hardly know, you know, not well known in Europe, but he liked the fact that we were a democracy and that there was a lot of opportunity in this country. And so he uh, left his fortune to the people of the United States with the proviso they found something called the Smithsonian Institution in Washington, and that it be dedicated to the increase and diffusion of knowledge, basically research and education. And that's a great, a great mission, and it's still our mission today. Now, we concentrate in different areas. We've developed different specialties. So one is obviously, given our artifacts and our standing as kind of the National Museum of the United States, you know, really telling the American experience. Another big aspect of our job is, of course, uh, 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 giving people an understanding of different cultures around the world. A third is uh, understanding the biodiverse planet, all the species and environments and uh, flora and fauna on this planet. And the last one that a lot of people don't know that the Smithsonian does is really understanding the mysteries of the universe. We have a collection of over 2,000 meteorites at the Smithsonian. Mm-hmm. We're trying to find out about the origin of the planet and even the galaxy and the universe. We actually have several hundred astrophysicists, and we run several space missions for NASA. So the Smithsonian is actually running satellites in space. And one of our big we have telescopes in Hawaii. We have another telescope in uh, in uh, Chile, we share time with telescopes uh, really all over the planet, and the idea is to discover new planets, to seek life on the uh, life, you know, in the rest of the universe, and, and understand the origins of, uh, of the universe through the Big Bang and so on. So the Smithsonian is pretty diverse. We, as I say, we figure out how pandas can reproduce, so, <laughs> so, so we can appreciate them in the future, and they can continue to play a role in our... Uh, uh, our understanding of the development of life on this planet. And then we uh, seek to understand, you know, the last election, the newest invention, uh, the, the last, you know, the current experiences of, uh, of uh, the American people. Whatever is news today in America, that goes in the museum and becomes our history of, from tomorrow, you know, of tomorrow. That leads me to this question. In what way can history help to predict the future? And in your vast amount of knowledge from all of these collections and and research. Well, I, you know, look, when you look at collections, you do learn various lessons. And, um, you know, I, I can give you, you know, a few. One, you know, we, is we, we want our country to continue to be inventive. You know, one of the challenges for America is we're very forward-looking. Americans are always looking ahead over the horizon. And, you know, if we're going to be innovative and creative and inventive, it's worth understanding how that process has worked in the past so we don't misrepresent it and think, well, this is how we're going to be an inventive. And, you know, it comes from uh, an inadequate understanding of how invention actually occurs. When you look at the Smithsonian's collection, you see that, you know, most often 
inventions in history that really make a difference and have an impact on our society are not the product of one, one person. There's usually a, a lot of people working on a problem at the same time. There's also a lot of different solutions. So literally, when you look at our collection and you say, wow, you know, what was going on to invent like the sewing machine? Well, we have, you know, dozens of sewing machines that were being invented in the 1840s and 1850s to figure out how do you join two pieces of cloth together? And, and, and there were a lot of people, different inventors working on it. So it's not just one sole person. Same thing when you're looking at the problem of Edison, of light, of Ford, of automobiles, of, you know, any of the, uh, the Wright brothers in terms of airplanes. There's a lot of people working on it. And you have a lot of false leads. You have a lot of starts and stops. And you have the role of serendipity and, um, uh, uh, you know, sometimes just uh, uh, inspiration that comes from outside a formal process. So when we're looking to create inventors in this country, we have to foster kind of a broad base. You know, our educational programs can't uh, assume that, well, you're just going to write a plan one day, you're going to invent this, and then you're going to be rich and it's going to work. <laughs> it doesn't quite work that way. <laughs> it's much more varied. So I, I think that helps us. The other thing that we learned from history is, of course, you know, what are the paths that the country took that, you know, were not the right path to take? And when we think about, you know, things, you know, institutions in this country like slavery and the Battle of Civil War, I mean, that was a, you know, the Civil War rent this country asunder. 700,000 people died. Um, it was, you know, at its base was you know, the fact that we thought other human beings could, you know, human beings could treat other human beings as property and without dignity. Now, don't we want, you know, it, it, see, it would seem that, you know, to be a society and as we move to the future, we, and as our country becomes more diverse, we want to learn some lessons from that so as not to repeat that kind of mistake of uh, fostering uh, inhumanity and disrespect and so on. So um, mm -hmm. I think history has some lessons for us. We just have to uh, be attuned to them and listen to them. Right. It seems like we just need to keep going over them. And how do you go about collecting your artifacts or museum collections? How do they get there? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, good question. You know, most of our artifacts, I say 99.9% .9 of them are donated by people. People get in touch with us. Now, right now, we're uh, uh, our, our biggest project right now going on in the museum is the building of the African American um, um, History and Culture Museum on the Mall. It's a stone's throw from the Washington Monument downtown Washington, and that museum started out really with no collections. Uh, unfortunately, uh, you know, through periods of civil war, of uh, uh, segregation, and so on, the National Museums, the Smithsonian, did not collect many objects that would tell the story of African-American history. Um, and so what happens in terms of doing this new museum is you have to acquire a collection. Well, what we're finding is people did store away a lot of items in their basements, their attics, and foot lockers on their shelf and so on because they felt there was nobody really to give it to. And now with this museum, we're finding amazing things coming forward uh, that's uh, you know coming into that museum. Uh, we just acquired some material, for example, Harriet Tubman material. They tell Harriet Tubman's story. You know, as an inspired conductor on the Underground Railroad who helped free slaves. Um, you know, the fact that you can that her artifacts still exist and you can get to them. Uh, so that's 
that's kind of amazing. Yeah. Uh, we do have relationships with folks mm-hmm. like NASA. So uh, in terms of uh, you know spaceships and space technology, we have a healthy pipeline where NASA looks at the Smithsonian as kind of the repository. Similarly with stamps. The Postmaster General has been very generous with the Smithsonian in terms of uh, giving to the Smithsonian the national collections and so on. But, you know, people write us every day. They call, they email. Hey, I have this wonderful thing. It's a walking stick from my grandfather. I think it should be in the Smithsonian or it's an old diary. Or here's, I, I open up this trunk and here's, here's something that looks like really old. What does the Smithsonian think about it? So th- th- those things happen literally every, every day. So do you have any predictions of what collections or exhibits that might be coming in the near future or artifacts that might you might see pop up in the museum, you know, some popular culture uh, things or anything to do with space travel? I mean, what, what, what can you expect or what, what do you hope to see coming your way? Well, I think, you know, the Smithsonian keeps collecting cell phones in the newest version, <laughs> you know, of devices. Uh, so we keep collecting, you know, newer and newer technology, everything from automobiles to things that fly to things that enable people to communicate and talk to each other. Um, one of the things we're collecting more nowadays, actually, interestingly enough, is, is code. So if you look at our digital universe, you know, uh, everything depends on on the writing of code, so you you need to collect that. The other thing that happens, and this is, this gets to be real interesting, is that when you're collecting, um, let's say, uh, 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 things from technology, things you know, think of you know DVDs, but also think of like when I was younger and we had you know cassette players and it wasn't digital or DVD or eight um, track players and cartridges. If we're going to collect them at the Smithsonian, you also have the technology. You have to collect the technology to actually play them. <laughs> so when you think we have a lot of film, for example, well, if you have eight millimeter film, you need a, a you know a, you need a projector, <laughs> and so we end up having to collect the machines to play the technology even as it goes obsolete. And I think that's that's one of the biggest challenges these days is you know you have technologies that with the advent of digital technology. Uh, you're always migrating from one form to the other to the other and trying to stay a, a, a foot ahead. We will always collect um, uh, popular culture. Uh, it's a culture that grows out of TV. And, you know, I remember I did a program with Henry Winkler uh, recently, and, you know, we collected Arthur Fonzarelli's leather jacket. <laughs> you know, I grew <laughs> up on that. It was great to collect that. Well, then we were collecting the desk from, you know, the judge's desk from American Idol. And so whatever the next show will be, I'm sure we'll be there to uh, to collect that as well. So, uh, you know, the important thing is artistic creation doesn't stop, culture doesn't stop, history doesn't stop, and we'll continue to collect it. At the same time, we've only documented about a million species. There's a lot of species we still haven't documented on the planet. And so you have scientists, Smithsonian scientists, looking in the wild and finding, indeed, new creatures. We found a new mammal, uh, what, last year, the Olonguito, first mammal discovered on the planet in 35 years that was living, I think, in Ecuador and Colombia uh, that we found because of a, based on analysis in our, in our collection. So, wow. um, you know, our, our activities uh, uh, go ahead. Wow, that's fantastic. And we're just about out of time, but I wanted to ask you what your 
favorites were, if you have some favorite artifacts or exhibits and uh, anything else important that you would like to mention that the public should know yeah. about. I'm, I'm, for my own, I mean, I'm very partial to the Star Spangled Banner. You know, this year we're celebrating the 200th anniversary of that. This is not an American flag. This is the flag that flew over Fort McHenry when, you know, in, in 1814, when after Washington had been burned, the fate of our country was in doubt. And this is the flag that inspired the Star Spangled Banner. And so you look at that flag, it's 42 feet by 30 feet. It's huge. It's, it's worn. It was loved to death. People cut snippets out. It's displayed in the central flag hall of our American History Museum on the Mall in Washington. You can, I cannot look at that without the hair on the back of my neck standing up and realizing, wow, that is that flag. And, and today at the Smithsonian, we swear in new citizens, people who take their oath to be Americans, they stand in front of that flag at the Smithsonian and take the oath of citizenship. And when they do that, there's not a dry eye in the museum because everybody, it, it, you know, it makes it much more poignant and it brings back home what being part of this country is about. Well, great. And, and uh, are there any other projects or exhibits coming up that you would like to mention? Well, I, you know, I think we're doing a, a, a lot on, um, in fact, uh, uh, given uh, some of your uh, uh, listeners, um, we, we've done a lot on uh, food culture recently and changes of food culture, and we even have bottles of wine in our collection. Oh. Now, I'd be tempted to open them up, but there's two particular bottles that won the Paris, the ones that won the Paris wine tasting. Uh, in uh, 1976 uh, from uh, from California that were very famous. And those bottles are actually in the Smithsonian. And wow. when they go on exhibit, I'm kind of tempted to pop the cork. <laughs> oh, I imagine. <laughs> um, also, since this will be airing in Utah, I was wondering actually if you have any, any Mormon collections. Well, we do, actually. Uh, one of, and one of the things I, that I name as one of the 101 uh, uh, objects in my book uh, and deal with in the uh, great course is uh, uh, one of the sunstones from the uh, uh, Nauvoo Temple that had been in Illinois and had been, um, you know, that temple was destroyed, you know, by fire, earthquake, it was dissembled. And, you know, this is one of the original uh, um uh, sunstones from this temple that Joseph Smith built. And uh, when he was uh, uh, head of the church, uh, he was mayor of Novo uh, in the 1840s, and the Smithsonian has that. And it's really prized a bit of a you know, piece of our collection because it shows the kind of religious flowering and diversity in our country. And, you know, of course, there was a lot of persecution of Mormons in our country, uh, and I think we're in a different place now in terms of understanding, uh, you know, the right to religion, which is fundamental in our country, and respect for each other's religion. So important as we look across the, the planet today and see what's happening in Syria and Iraq, that uh, I think we're all fortunate as Americans to to know that we live with freedom of religion. So that's that's a very important object in, our, in the book. Oh, very interesting. And actually, I'm sorry, I thought of another question about, because of climate change issues and that are so prominent today and I'm um, wondering what what insights the Smithsonian has been able to reveal about that. Well, you know, the, here, here's an interesting thing because we just did issue a policy statement with regard to climate change because the Smithsonian studies climate change 
not like in the last 20 years or 30 or 50 years. We study climate change over millions of years, mm-hmm. tens of millions of years, hundreds of millions of years, because we have a fossil record of the planet. And so the Smithsonian has an amazing collection that can reveal periods of global warming and cooling, its impact on the environment and various species. And so we have, uh, uh, um, you know, literally, um, you know, more than 100 scientists uh, doing work in, uh, you know, the processes of global warming and the, you know, the consequences and the impact and kind of, you know, what to expect and where and, and how our environments have changed. So uh, increasingly we're, we're looking at that. And, of course, we're also looking at the impact of, uh, of climate change on human populations. We have an American Indian Museum. We have a collection of almost 2 million Indian, American Indian artifacts. And, you know, they, again, provide a record both historically and uh, prehistorically of native life on this, uh, in, in the Americas. And when you look at that, you start looking at how do native peoples who often live at the edge of uh, different ecozones, uh, when you think of Inuit, Eskimos up in the Arctic, you know, mm-hmm. what happens when their culture starts changing? What happens mm-hmm. when you have global warming and you can't hunt seals or walruses? When, you know, the, 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 the frost is uh, melting. And, um, and so we start, um, you know, so we're doing research on, on its impact on people over time. So I think we, you know, we're, we're kind of in the early stages of that, but I, I hope that the Smithsonian's collections of millions of things can help bring some insight as to those natural and uh, human-affecting processes that uh, relate to climate change. We call our project Living in the Anthropocene, the Age of Human Beings, and what's been the impact uh, over the last million years, but also what's been the impact on the hundred or so million years or several hundred million years before that. Great, great. Well, I, I imagine that definitely that it will help answer some questions. Um, and thank you so much for your time. What a pleasure talking uh, to you. Okay, Sherry, same here. Thank you very much. It was really great. And and also, is there a website that you can, can direct listeners yeah, to? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I, well, for the Smithsonian, it's just www.si.edu. That was Richard Kieran. Thank you for listening. Sherry Quinn, Access Utah. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread, located at 300 South and 300 West in Logan, featuring savory European-style breakfast treats, such as quiches and a revolving menu of lunch sandwiches, such as artichoke basil and fresh mozzarella. Information at crumbbrothers.com. And USU Human Resources. The Be Well Moment is made possible by the USU Department of Human Resources Wellness Program at usu.edu hr. In addition to the 25 million people in this country who have been diagnosed with diabetes or who have it but don't yet know that they do, an estimated 79 million people have entered the danger zone known as pre-diabetes. 
Their blood glucose levels are higher than normal, but have not yet risen to the level at which they would indicate a diagnosis of diabetes. In people with prediabetes, the pancreas may not be working as efficiently as it once did, or the body may be gradually building a resistance to the insulin it produces, so that the hormone can't do as good a job of clearing glucose from the bloodstream. The good news is that type 2 diabetes is preventable. Diabetes prevention is as basic as eating more healthfully, becoming more physically active, and losing a few extra pounds. And it's never too late to start. This is Lisa for the Be Well program at Utah State University. Be well, Utah. It's the Beehive Archive on Utah Public Radio. I'm Megan Van Frank. This week, learn about the wandering ways of a young artist and writer who mysteriously disappeared in 1934 into southern Utah's rugged canyon country. First this. I'm Cynthia Buckingham, director of the Utah Humanities Council. Beehive Archive is brought to you on Utah Public Radio by the Utah Humanities Council with the generous support of the Lawrence T. and Janet T.D. Foundation. UHC is proud to partner with community organizations to tell Utah stories as part of our statewide tour of the Smithsonian Exhibition, Journey Stories. Tune in each week for a new Utah Journey Story from the Beehive Archive. Welcome to the Beehive Archive, a two-minute look at some of the most pivotal and peculiar events in Utah's history. Everett Roos was 20 years old when he vanished into the canyons of southern Utah, never to be seen again. Born in Los Angeles to bohemian parents, Roos developed early as a writer and artist. Supported by his family, Roos left home to wander the American West to gain experience on the road and feed his creativity. Roos took his first solo road trip at 16, hitchhiking to Northern California where he camped by the ocean, then to Yosemite before returning to Los Angeles to finish high school. Then he took off again, this time to Monument Valley in southern Utah. Over the next few years, Roos traveled alone using pack horses and burros and traded his art to help pay his way. He traveled through Zion Canyon in northern Arizona, back to the Sierra Nevadas and around the Superstition Mountains. He even lived in San Francisco, where he spent time with now-famous artists Dorothea Lange, Ansel Adams, and Maynard Dixon. Although he went home occasionally, Roos loved the wilderness and returned again and again to the desert southwest. Roos was last seen in November 1934 in Escalante, Utah, before heading into nearby canyons. Some believe he was murdered by rustlers, or committed suicide, or died of dehydration, Others maintain that he went to live on the Navajo Reservation or in Mexico. In the last letter sent to his brother, dated just before his disappearance, Roos wrote, I have not tired of the wilderness. Rather, I enjoy its beauty and the vagrant life I lead more keenly all the time. I prefer the saddle to the streetcar and the star-sprinkled sky to a roof, the obscure and difficult trail leading into the unknown to any paved highway, and the deep peace of the wild to the discontent bred by cities. The fate of Everett Roos remains a riddle, but his writing and artwork, these remnants of his journeys, now provide inspiration to thousands. Sources and past episodes of the Beehive Archive may be found at utahumanities.org. For the Beehive Archive, a production of the Utah Humanities Council, I'm Megan Van Frank. Mm-hmm.